Welcome to Public Work, a podcast that dives in to the world of public humanities. My name is Amelia Golcheski, and I'm flying solo today. My podcast partner in crime, Jim, is off. Today, I want to share with you an interview I conducted with West Virginia State folklorist Emily Hilliard. I first learned about Emily and her work a couple years ago on Twitter when West Virginia's Humanities Council hired her to document folk life in the Mountain State. Our conversation touches on defining folklore, the importance of collaborative ethnographic work, challenges in collecting diverse folkloric traditions in West Virginia, and we also get into contemporary issues, including West Virginia's narrative as Trump country in the national media and the West Virginia teacher strike. The West Virginia teacher strike happened a little earlier this year when teachers in all 55 counties kept schools closed for over a week, striking for better pay and better benefits. This was another chapter in a long, rich labor tradition in West Virginia's history, and Emily was on deck to document it for posterity. One of the things I took away from our conversation is that there are no elegies here. Folk life is alive and well in West Virginia, and it's also incredibly diverse. As Emily says, it's more than just fiddles and banjos. I was fascinated to learn about broom making and neon signs shaped by human hands going on right now in West Virginia. I was also interested to learn that West Virginia has a long, rich hot dog tradition. Uh, So the next time I'm eating lunch in West Virginia, I'll be sure never to order ketchup on a hot dog. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let us know what you think. Uh, Feel free to tweet us at publicworkpod or send us an email. And our address is publicworkpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so to kind of get started, my first question for you is, what is folklore? um, And how do you define your work? Sure. So um, this is a question I get a lot, and people have a lot of different ideas of what folklore is. It's one of those things that has an academic definition and then a popular definition. So people sometimes ask me if I know a lot of myths and legends or tell stories or dress up in costume. Um, But I like to say that it is uh, the way a group expresses itself creatively. Um, And that can be food ways, dance, music, uh, language, um, jokes, dress, material culture. Um, And I like that definition because it sort of emphasizes that it's about um, any kind of creativity and not just big A traditional art um, and not just you know myths and legends but includes those things and also um, the fact that it's a group um, I think uh, stresses that it's it comes out of a community um, and these are creative expressions that um, are based in place and community and um, there's sort of a more academic definition from uh, folklorist Dan Benamos, and he says it's artistic communication in small groups, and this is basically, you know, saying the same thing. 
Yeah. And how did you decide to become a folklorist? What's your journey into this world of documenting? My origin story. Your, your origin story. <laughs> um, well, I sort of have a, had the slow meandering path. I um, grew up in Indiana, and my dad was part of an old-time and folk music community there. So I was aware of traditional culture and always had an interest in it. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of old blues and Celtic and British folk and singer-songwriter stuff um, and sort of tried to bury that and because it wasn't cool. Um, and then when I got to college at Michigan and I was um, a French and English major, um, I started to get back into um, folk music, traditional music. Uh, I got the Anthology of American Folk Music and um, got really into that. I started playing the fiddle again. Um, and uh, then I was living in Vermont after college and playing in a bunch of um, bands and DJing at the radio station and sort of going deep into all these musical forms and um, sort of realized that all the books I was checking out from the library were related to folklore, um, in particular Shirley Collins' America Over the Water. Um, she is a British folk singer and um, and writer, and she actually traveled with Alan Lomax through the South um, in the 50s and was his, you know, officially a secretary, but really was doing a lot of the recording, particularly for um, women you know, who might not sing for Alan, they would sing for Shirley. Um, so I would say that was really foundational in seeing the scope of this work and how individual um, identity can sort of inform, um, you know, access and curation and that sort of thing. Um, and I think I just realized that folklore was a academic discipline and had you know, sort of a career path um, attached to it. Um, and it was attractive because it it requires a lot of diverse topical knowledge, um, things that I have always, I've always kind of been a generalist and had these kind of broad sweeping interests. So it, it kind of engages and values that um, and draws on these diverse skill sets like writing and ethnography, um, is a nice blend of academic rigor and and public facing applied work that feels um, grounded and embedded in the community uh, and and has a this social justice um, component uh, to um, value voices that may be marginalized or uncelebrated. Yeah. So. I'm really interested in the social justice component you mentioned. Um, can you talk about kind of projects you're doing that em really embody that? Um, when we think about folklore and when I think about the Lomaxes, um, Alan more than John, of course, mm -hmm. I, I think there is this idea that um, they made something authentic, like it took a white man saying, like, this is valuable. Um, right. And it sounds like you don't want to do that. 
Uh, so, so how has the field shifted a little bit and, Mm -hmm. and maybe towards more shared authority, authority? Sure. Yeah. Um, so that is so complicated and obviously I, um, am so thankful for the work that Alan did. Um, but you know, we start to see the way that he was curating and, you know, everyone has to curate because you, you can't collect everything. Um, but I think, he, you know, he was making a lot of decisions about, um, you know, definitely authenticity. Like you said, I was, um, working with this collection of a banjo player who, uh, was in East Kentucky when Alan came through, um, she was a band leader. She had a radio show on the local uh, radio station in Paintsville that was on every day. Uh, she played with Bill Stepp, who um, Alan recorded, and his version of Bonaparte's Retreat is the one we all know and the one that Aaron Copeland you know, used for Rodeo, uh, and then it became uh, in the beef, it's what's for dinner commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he didn't record this woman nor a carpenter and i suspect that a lot of that was because she was learning things off of um off of the radio and records and she had a pretty um catholic approach to her music um and so there were a lot of people uh, i'm sure that you know were never recorded and there's a lot of archival silences i think um the way i try to uh consider that in my own work is um, working from a place of collaborative ethnographic um, methodology and that's an ideal that I strive for it's not always possible Um, but collaborative collaborative ethnography I would say is um, this approach where the consultant um, you know the person you're interviewing um, and folklorists are both experts in their own experience, and it's really um, a dialogic process. Uh, so it is a conversation. Um, you try to, you know, leave your assumptions at the door. Obviously, that's not always possible. Um, and then you're engaging um, the consultant in every aspect. So if you're writing about um, the interview after the fact, um, you sit down and have a conversation about. Um, what you've written about them or, or their community. Um, and then that, that feedback informs um, the work moving forward and informs the, the future um, field work. And, um, and so I try to do that in my uh, work with the West Virginia Folklife Program. Um, before anything is published about a person, they get to see it and they have final say on what gets published. Um, and that's very different from a journalistic approach, um, but, and sometimes I don't think it's attractive necessarily to people who aren't used to reading that sort of, um, ethnographic writing, um, but I do think it is, uh, it feels grounded and like a partnership rather than, um, this sort of power structure where the, the folklorist Yeah, and I really, I think that partnership piece is so important because if we're defining folklore as a way 
a group expresses its creativity like that's so personal um Mm -hmm. so I really appreciate the ways that you are working to like make it an equal um interaction between the two um so you are West Virginia's state folklorist Mm -hmm. and are you the first one um what what kind of in what ways has West Virginia's folklore been archived before you started? Um, how much of the folklore has been documented? Um, mm-hmm. What did you walk into kind of on day one of your job? <laughs> um, so I, I am the first official state folklorist. Um, there was um, someone, uh, my closest predecessor is Jerry Milnes, um, and he was at Augusta Heritage Center. He's on our board, and he's been a great mentor uh, for my work. Um, but he didn't—he was kind of serving as a state folklorist without the title, and maybe didn't have as much capability because he was part of this organization that puts on camps um, for traditional music, and so that was his main funding source and his main um, main focus. But he did do an amazing amount of collecting. He produced films and wrote books and established heritage trails. Um, So that was a good foundation. Um, But at my uh, place of work, the West Virginia Humanities Council, um, there was no existing program or folklorist. Um, They had employed one to do a music study of the um, third congressional district in the Southern Coalfields about 10 years ago. Um, and that that work was also helpful, but there was not anything that existed. Um, so it's basically been building a program, and it's an exciting uh, opportunity because there aren't many state programs that are starting at this point. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, I'm not sure how long you know, most state folklore uh, programs have been around probably 20 years at least. And this is an opportunity to say, okay, what does a folk life program that starts in 2015 look like? And what are some things that other state folk life programs may not have shed along the way that they could have? Um, what's something we can start doing from the very beginning um, to make this dynamic and, um, and community focused? Um, I think one of the challenges in this state is a lot of what has been documented has been focused on white Scots-Irish traditions, Mm -hmm. um, and West Virginia is, um, I think the statistics are that it's 98% white, but I, my experience is that it is generally represented, um, as much less diverse than it actually is. Um, part of that is because I live in Charleston. Um, but I think that there are a lot of, there's been a lot of erasure and marginalization of other communities. Um, and many of them were not actually documented um, very extensively. Um, you know, in the 1920s, when coal was booming, all of these immigrant communities were coming to the state, um, and African Americans from the South. And there's still a lot of 
um, that influence here, a lot of those communities here, um, and that is not always seen. And you know, particularly as we are, we have become this Trump country um, or received this Trump country narrative. Um, a lot of outside media is really just focused on the fact that we are a white state um, or we appear to be a white state. And so um, that's something I've really been thinking about um, with this program moving forward. Yeah. And so how do you find those stories um, that have been tried to be erased? Um, What does it look like trying to write that back into the cultural history of West Virginia? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think one of the things now is um, I actively seek out these communities um, and I'm hearing about, you know, I'm hearing new stories all the time. Um, there was a Spanish strong Spanish community in Harrison County, West Virginia, um, that still is there in some part and have, they've retained a lot of their foodways. Um, you know, there's new, um, immigrants who are part of the poultry industry. Um, so I guess I'm not necessarily doing historical recovery, but thinking about, okay, who's here now and what are those um, stories um, that are not being documented um, and that we can really focus on, um, you know, in our field work now and uh, and share. And, um, and some of that also is um, working with the communities to be their own documentarians um, and uh, see the value of that, that preservation. Absolutely. So I, I guess it's sort of like the thing that everyone always says, the ideal for my job is that, you know, I work myself out of a job. Um, and in some ways I think that's true. Um, just helping people be their own best documentarians and their own best storytellers, um, I think is really an important part of being a public folklorist. What kind of training do you do for teaching people how to be their own storytellers? Um, so we've done a few oral history workshops, and that's a program that we are hoping to build. Um, I've also been talking with a high school teacher who would like to work together to develop an oral history curriculum for high school students. Um, it would probably look like them interviewing um, an elder in their community, maybe a grandparent or some other community member, and um, doing some writing and probably a collaborative ethnographic um, method for that. Um, and at that point, or at this point, we don't have too much um, of that happening, but it's sort of a case-by-case basis. So people ask me all the time, you know, if I want to interview my grandmother, what should I do? Um, if I want to talk to this woman in my neighborhood, how should I record that? Uh, and I think us just being a advisor for that is helpful. Um, when I get those questions, um, it sort of depends on how much 
someone is willing to um, invest in equipment, but I think having a smartphone is a um, really easy way to approach that. And I, I like the StoryCorps app a lot for really simple or oral histories that you can then send to the archive at the Library of Congress. Do you have like a central archive that you're managing where you're collecting stories and where people can add their stories? So we have developed a archival partnership with WVU Libraries mm -hmm. and all of my collected material will be stored there in perpetuity. Um, and we can actually acquire additional collections. Um, and I'm a little wary of that just because um, I don't want to overload WVU at this point, but definitely if there's something that really needs to be preserved, um, we could acquire that as part of our collection. Um, at this point, it's all you know, backed up on hard drives um, through the Humanities Council, um, and that's as WVU Libraries is building their metadata system um, and way for me to send them materials uh, digitally. Mostly it's a digital-born um, collection um, because I'm doing audio, digital audio recordings, video, um, photos, but we do have some ephemera, um, and people have also given me um, cassette tapes, VHS, um, some old uh, sort of home recording discs that um, you play on a turntable. Mm -hmm. um, so it will be pretty varied, but mostly digital. Very cool. Um, you mentioned West Virginia as being treated as Trump country, and um, that that has me thinking about, you know, has the 2016 election and really like a national gaze focused on West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky or East Tennessee, like has that changed in any way how you approach your work or the more social justice aspects of your work? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's really changed how I approach the work, but I think the frame has changed possibly. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, most mainstream media who is doing Trump country narrative stuff isn't really interested in my like dialogic ethnographic um, pretty you know what might seem boring um, and it it doesn't fit in with their narrative um, but I think just being able to tell a story from within um, with from within West Virginia and in a way that's really embedded in community is an important counter narrative um, for the community itself and that's something I've thought about as I've been publishing um, some articles about my work for um, more mainstream media or public, you know, national media. Um, who is this really for? And I think while I'm writing for a broad public audience, um, when I'm writing about a specific community, for instance, the most important thing to me is that the, that community would say, she got it right. Um, this is us, uh, and could really stand behind that and feel that I was, um, you know, doing something 
doing their community and um, their place um, right, I guess. Um, so, and, yeah, and I guess personally it was pretty interesting to arrive here right before that happened. So I moved here in October 2015. Um, and I think, you know, maybe some of my personal um, understanding of complicated politics and labor um, has certainly changed and grown, and I've learned a lot. Um, and I'm sure that informs my approach. But I wouldn't say necessarily that um, the field work has changed because of of this outside narrative. Yeah, and one of the things that is kind of striking to me about the outside narrative and, you know, the New York Times or The Guardian or, you know, whichever mainstream publication sends someone to McDowell County, West Virginia, a couple times a year for a, a piece is, in some ways, it reminds me of like earlier histories, the late 19th century, early 20th century mm-hmm. of like song catchers or, or um, anthropologists or ethnographers, right. like kind of seeking out a nativist um, history embedded right. in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and what's so interesting to me is your work, I think it's fair to say follows in that tradition just in terms of documenting but you're Mm -hmm. doing something so radically different (laughs) from (laughs) what they were doing um I'm wondering you know does your do you think about programs that kind of you know engages with that history um while also engaging with kind of what's going on right now like, how do you document this moment in time where the nation has painted kind of a nativist, um, wild story on West Virginia as a folk right. artist? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about doing that reflect, you know, documentation of the outside narrative reflected back, mm-hmm. um, but I do think it, I, it's something I think about um, just in my own like personal individ, um, positionality because I'm not from the region and I grew up I grew up in Indiana um, and uh, you know I was very aware of this cult, uh, cultural extraction you know people say cultural strip mining the history of um, carpet baggers coming in from the north. Um, I actually have not been faced with um, as much confrontation about that than I, as I thought I would. I, I think there's sort of, you know, I'm from a Rust Belt town in Indiana up north, and um, I think there's some familiar, familiarity of that because of the Hillbilly Highway and people moving up there. Um, there's sort of a solidarity with the Midwestern Rust Belt. It might be different if I, you know, said I was from New York or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, it's something I think about all the time. Um, And I know I have certain assumptions and, um, you know, have made mistakes and, you know, I'm in a place that is not home. Um, 
so that always comes with um, certain dynamics. Um, but yeah, I think balancing that with collaborative ethnography is helpful. Um, I'm able to have frank and open conversations with <clears throat> friends and colleagues who are from the area um, to talk about this dynamic. Um, and it actually hasn't been an issue in the work as much as I thought it might be. Um, but it's something I'm very aware of. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm just careful with my language. Um, and I don't want my work to feel appropriative or um, sensational or that I'm taking on an identity that's not mine. Yeah. Um, you know, West Virginia has more or less been in the news um, nonstop since the 2016 <laughs> election. Um, yeah. But earlier this year, they were in the news for a statewide teacher strike um, mm -hmm. where teachers in all 55 counties struck for higher pay and um, change in benefits. And I'm interested to hear, you know, how, how did you think about documenting that? Um, you know, what, when did you decide, like, that was a moment that wasn't just a flash in the pan? Like, that was a moment that um, people will remember for a really long time, kind of in West Virginia history. Yeah. Um, I, well, I was actually on vacation out of the country on the first and second day of the strike, um, so I was like in the hotel watching West Virginia teacher strike videos, and, you know, wishing I was there. Um, I had heard some murmurs about it before I went away. Um, but then I got back, I think on the third day. Um, and it just, I mean, it really just seemed like a no brainer. Uh, labor is such a huge part of West Virginia's story. And, um, there is an you know, often a masculinization of that labor. You know, you think about the coal miner, the steel worker, um, the logger, uh, and that's not, you know, that's not necessarily accurate. Um, and there have been a lot of labor struggles um, led by women in the past here. But I think this was exciting, particularly because it was um, a woman-led movement. Um, and I had been thinking a lot about West Virginia's labor history in light of the Trump country narrative. So in a way, it was not surprising. Um, you know, it's, it was so clearly part of this state's um, cultural history and their awareness. And, um, you know, the way teachers invoked um, the Battle of Blair Mountain and um, Mother Jones, and there was a lot of referencing um, to that history. Um, so it just seemed natural. And I also, um, I like live and work two blocks from the Capitol. So <laughs> I was able to walk there every day. Um, and really the focus of my documentation for that was on the expressive culture, um, that was, that came out in the signs, um, turns out that teachers are really good at making signs <laughs> and they have you know all the supplies um, really creative really clever um, a lot of them called upon children's books and math equations and you know have these very witty um, high-level jokes um, so that was exciting 
an exciting aspect of the strike, and I think very particular um, to this particular uh, to the to this moment and this um, who it was and why they were doing it. Um, and then I also did some box pop interviews, um, just kind of women on the street, women at the strike, um, and that was, I mean, kind of personally thrilling as a folklorist to do. It's sort of like feeling like Studs Terkel. Um, it's so clearly uh, a historical moment um, and just kind of getting the on-the-ground reaction uh, was very exciting. Yeah, I imagine. I was, um, I'm interested in women and labor in West Virginia um, and my undergraduate thesis was on women in the West Virginia mine wars and so since like 2013, I've been very invested in the Battle Blair Mountain, and I feel like it's, I have like a Google alert, um, <laughs> and it's shot up <laughs> exponentially in the last six months. Um, and what I think is so interesting is, you know, women were organizing in 1921, and then like in mm-hmm. southwestern Virginia and the Pittston coal strike right like women organized under the banner you know they called themselves the daughters of mother jones so Mm -hmm. i think there's just something really cool to see this like continuation of history but also perhaps folks placing themselves you know really meaningfully in a larger historical tradition Um, right and i'm interested in kind of the material culture of that so did you did you collect signs or did you just take pictures um how did you kind of capture like the zeitgeist like the intangible (laughs) excitement of all that um so I mostly took pictures I was trying to collect signs um and that effort got stalled a little bit I would still like to do that Mm -hmm. um I was planning to collect signs and photograph all of them um that I collected and then uh keep a few uh, physical signs for the archive. Mm -hmm. Um, I also started to collect memes because there were so many amazing memes um, related to the strike. And some of them, you know, I haven't even seen or I don't have access to because there's a, you know, a Facebook, a teacher Facebook group. Mm -hmm. Um, But these memes were very West Virginia referential. So West Virginia has a really big... um, hot dog tradition <laughs> and uh, there's specific so a, a West Virginia dog is generally chili slaw mustard and onions and there's a slaw line in the state where you you basically can't get slaw above a certain line above the certain um, latitude yeah um, where is it and so there was a, a meme of one of the politicians who um, who was kind of blocking um the deal and it said Mitch Carmichael likes ketchup on his Yans dog um and Yans is one of those above the slaw line places Mm. um where you can't get slaw and also if you have ketchup if you ask for ketchup on a West Virginia dog you will get asked to leave basically um so there were all of these things like this that you could real they were like inside jokes in the state um but in reference to other um, you know, West Virginia folklore 
and cultural institutions that I just thought was so cool. So I started saving some of those as well. Um, and I don't really know much about what how people are collecting memes yet, but I know that the American Folklife Center has started to do that, and I'll probably approach them and uh, get some guidance on how they're doing that and, um, you know, trying to get a widespread of memes that are that exist, but also uh, something that's representative and all the variants that ensue after a meme yeah. goes viral. Yeah, what does metadata look like for a meme? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't even know. <clears throat> it, it seems like it could get pretty complicated. Yes, quickly. I mean, they're just so um, ephemeral. Right. Um, I don't think we've actually a, have a method to uh, collect those yet. This is a new territory. You're on the cutting edge. What? You're on the cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, what other projects are you working on right now? Um, so we started a, um apprenticeship program this coming year, or this, um, in 2017. Um, and an apprenticeship, folklife apprenticeships are really a tried and tested state folklife uh, program initiative. Um, Ours supports master artists and their apprentices in a year-long apprenticeship, and um, they apply together as a pair, so they've already identified that they'd like to work together. Um, the program offers them a stipend, and uh, they are required to document and share their work um, or tradition with a local community. They have to meet a certain amount of times over the course of the year. They do a public presentation, um, and the program has a few different goals. I think um, one is that it recognizes the master artist um, for their work as a master of their tradition, and it also ensures that um, the tradition is being passed on. So in our first year, we funded five pairs, and they're from all over the state. There's two old-time fiddle uh, pairs. There's one um, salt in doing a salt rising bread apprenticeship, which is a uh, salt rising bread is a particularly Appalachian fermented bread. Um, and there's another in blues and black gospel. And the, uh, the last one is herbalism and green traditions. Um, so that is in the works right now. I think we're about halfway through the program, and we are hoping to do that every other year. And hopefully we can um, fund more pairs as we grow the program. Um, then the statewide Folklife Fieldwork Survey that I've been doing, um, interviews with traditional artists and um, cultural communities and elders across the state uh, that's continuing. Um, it's really an ongoing project um, that, you know, could go on in perpetuity. And I think that w documentation will always be a big part of the Folklife Program's work. Um, we 
have a nice partnership with West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and last year we produced a short documentary, a video and an audio documentary about um, one of the last uh, broom makers in the state. Mm -hmm. And now we are working on one about a neon sign maker in St. Albans. Um, he's 85, and he's one of the last uh, hand tube benders in the area. Um, so we just shot the, the video last week and are um, developing the script, and that should be out probably by the summertime. Um, as a personal project, I'm working with Belt Publishing um, and Elizabeth Catt and Jessica Salfia, a West Virginia teacher, um, to um, publish a book about the teacher strike. My role is uh, basically the documents and photos, um, expressive culture that I've collected. Uh, I'll probably have some um, transcripts of the interviews I did with teachers or quotes, and that should be out in the summer, um, but is a sort of side project that I'm doing outside of West Virginia Folk Life program work. Um, and then with the Folk Life program, we are always publishing. Um, we have a regular column in Golden Seal Magazine, which is the magazine of traditional life in the state uh, that comes out quarterly. So I write uh, for that every, um, every quarter. And it's usually about the field work that I've been doing. Um, and we're also working with the Appalachian Food Summit, which is a regional um, organization. They are hosting their annual gathering or biannual gathering in Bridgeport, West Virginia, this September. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be, it's not really an academic panel. It's, it's kind of between academic and public conference. Um, there's farmers and chefs and um, food writers, food activists seed savers um, who come together and talk about um, it, the Appalachian food culture and farming and, um, you know, all of that. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good picture of what's on my plate at the moment. You are very busy. <laughs> you have a lot. Yeah, always. <laughs> um, I do have, have just a couple more questions. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in, you know, how do you determine, like, what is worth preserving? Um, and, like, what it, how do you define West Virginia cultural heritage? Um, what makes, you know, reaching out to someone who shapes neon signs by hand um, in the same category as, like, old-time fiddle? Like, it seems like... What was the first thing you said? Sorry. Um, like, the neon sign maker who's shaping oh, right. tubes mm -hmm. by hand. Like, how did they all kind of fit under the same umbrella as folklore or cultural heritage? And how do you mm -hmm. define that? Yeah. So, I guess I would say there's a lot that's worth... Well, I guess there's a difference between... You know what's worth preserving and what's worth documenting, um, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's a question of worth, really, because I think there's a lot that is worthy of being preserved and understood. And you know, folklore is everywhere. I mean, 
venture capitalists have folklore, I'm sure. I don't know anything about it. But I'm sure that there's language that is specific to that occupation. Um, you know, every every community has um, creative expression, cultural expression. Um, but I think where I'm interested um, is in a tradition that may be fading or um, a voice or a story that is marginalized or underrepresented or just something that is very prominent in a community, um, you know, something that the community itself says, this is important. Um, and that's not something I would always recognize. So I think that's where the um, collaborative ethnography really comes in. Um, it's a it's this collaborative process. And I think, you know, sometimes people within a community might not be able to see what's valuable um, because it's so normalized, like hot dogs, for instance. Um, I think, you know, that's kind of taken for granted, but coming in from outside and it's just like, there's so many amazing hot dog stands in the state. What's going on with that? Um, so I think that there's uh, there's sort of like a, a way to combat the triviality barrier um, that an outsider might have that an insider might not necessarily recognize um, because it's just so taken for granted or seen as something that is just too insignificant to... Um, document or value. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if I really answered your question. Um, I try to stay away from the authentic word, yeah. but um, but think about, you know, is this something that a community values? Um, is it a creative expression? Is it passed on between people? Um, is it something that may not have formal training, um, but is learned through oral tradition. Um, and obviously those things get bent a little bit. Um, and I also want to make room for emergent traditions, um, new traditions, or things that may seem like they're new but are actually part of a longer thread. So I've been thinking about doing a project on self-publishing in West Virginia. Um, there was the Hillbilly newspaper that was um, published in Richwood, I believe, um, for a long time. And it was this kind of like folk paper that households all over the state got. He printed one issue in Ramp Juice and got a Ramp Inc. and got a cease and desist from um, the federal government. Um, and now we're seeing. You know, I think it's been going on for a while, but there's a resurgence of zines um, in the state that are representative of community, um, and it may be hard to see that as part of a West Virginia tradition, but I do think you can trace a trajectory. Um, so, yeah, being open to things that um, that may seem new or insignificant. Another thing I've been interest, really interested in is that West Virginia wrestling. Yeah. Um, like rural wrestling um, communities, I think, are fascinating. Um, so, yeah, not just, um, I don't know, I always say not just fiddle and banjo. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a lot more there in 55 counties. 
and two burning right. candles. Yeah. 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 Thanks for listening to Public Works. You can find us on Twitter at publicworkspod or email us at publicworkspodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.